C.S. Richardson is an award-winning designer of mm-hmm. books, Canadian, and won the Alcoon Society's 2006 award 2006, for, yeah, for, for Best Designed Book. Best Designed, I think it's Nonfiction Pictorial, they call it. And the title is The Bedside Book of Birds by Graham Gibson. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. The first thing that comes to mind is R, your initials, C.S. Mm-hmm. I can't help but thinking of... <laughs> As we all do. C.S. Lewis. Your name is Scott. That's my is, middle name, yes. Is this C.S., is this a literary no. thing? I come by it quite honestly. And to make a very long story very short, my first name is Charles. But when my folks were naming me, all oh, those many years ago... There was quite a discussion amongst the two of them. as His name will be Charles Scott, but we will call him Scott. So ever since then, it's been C. Scott, it's been Scott, it's been this, that, and the other thing. And when I got to a professional level in my life, I thought, well, that will be my signage. I will take any literary reference to the bank. I will be shameless in writing on Mr. Lewis's coattails. Just when you hear C.S., it, it, Lewis just kind of wants to roll off the tongue, and it's, but it is such a nice connection, really. I yeah, think. it is. I mean, it's more, it was, it's more good luck than good management. I kind of like it. I, I'm, I'm proud of it. As you are, I'm sure, of this wonderful book, The Bedside Book of Birds. Absolutely. Yeah. And what I'd like to do is go through this book with you, discussing the role of the designer. Sure. So to start with, I have a copy of it's a paperback copy with right. French gate or a sort of flap yeah. version of the hardcover which came out about a year ago. Yeah. So in terms of what went into the hardcover versus the soft cover, any difference? No no difference whatsoever. The original publication was in hardcover. It's almost an automatic thing, with certainly within Canadian publishing, that about a year after a hardcover comes out, it will become a paperback. So did you have a choice? Was it, did you have any kind of input as to, well, should we start off as a paperback and not go with a hard, hardback? Not so much. No, my, my role in the initial planning of the book as a hardcover was more to do with the format it was going to take. Was it going to be a large coffee table book? Was it going to be literally a bedside book, small, intimate, something you could sit in your lap. So that's my my involvement at that initial planning stage was literally just looking at the amount of visual material we had and how best, in conjunction with Graham, in conjunction with the publisher, how best to put that into a book form that could eventually become a paperback without too much changing of anything. So, yeah, it would, it, whether it was going to start... I think it was always going to be a hardcover, cause just because of the wealth of stuff that Graham had amassed. We we knew from the word go that it was going to be a hardcover. Now, is this the thinking that, go, that goes into designing a book all, all the time? You sort of have a look at the, the, the illustrations, let's say, that are amassed? Yeah, certainly on an illustrated book, what we call an illustrated book, uh, a, a pictorial book. One of the first decisions to be made is what format is that book going to take. In proper terms, it has to be driven by what's inside. If you're publishing a book of photographs and all the photographs are horizontal in format, there's no sense in doing a vertical book. It just won't make any sense. It will not provide a platform that is the best for the material. In illustrated books and also in you know some novels and some nonfiction that is more text-heavy, there is a consideration as to what format it's going to take. And the factors are 
the quality and format of the illustrations that are going to be involved. If it's text-heavy, how long the text is. Uh, if an author has written a half a million words, you have to make the book a certain size just to fit those words in and make it reasonably handle. Somebody can actually handle it. So, in other words, uh, obviously you, you, you take into account form and function. Oh, absolutely. Oh, how are we going to get that information into a reader's hands in a reasonably interesting and reasonably economical and reasonably low-risk low way? Low risk meaning uh, what you sort of work within the budget limitations. Well, yeah, sure. We all, yeah, we there are certainly budget considerations. We don't want to get in. The, I mean, certainly as a book designer, I mean, my my first rule, whether I'm designing a an inexpensive mystery novel in paperback or a luscious bedside book of birds, don't get in the way. You have the author, and then you have the reader at the other end of the scale, and somewhere in between, there is that publishing process which involves design. And if at any point I am being self-indulgent in my design or if I just go on some sort of whim and take this book in a different direction in terms of format or design or look, I automatically get in the way. I make the reader's life harder. Give me a specific instance where a designer of books might get in the way of the you know the connection between the writer sure. and the reader. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the classic pitfall that I think every designer has fallen into, and certainly I, I'm the first one to admit that in my earlier years I did it too, is, I mean, we all, as designers, we have favorite typefaces, and we have favorite trim sizes and things like that. Um, and what a designer could well do is take a book that is intended, say, for an older audience, but set the type really small. So that's just really an error in judgment. That's just a, yeah. That's just that yeah. It's an error in not realizing what the end result of that book is going to be and who is the ultimate consumer, yeah. the ultimate reader. I yeah. was I worked on a book uh, a couple of years ago. It was a collection of war photographs taken by by veterans themselves. In discuss preliminary discussions with the publishing house, we determined that the ideal reader, the end reader, was the veterans themselves. Now, this is an aging population. The eyesight's getting a little old. So that was the first consideration I had in terms of how big do I make the type? How big should the book be? I mean, how do we How heavy it? should it be? How heavy should it be? What kind of paper are we going to use? How are we going to treat all those photographs? And that, that knowledge of the end reader drove everything to do with that book. Absolutely everything, from the trim size to the number of images that we used and how they were used. And the size of type. I think where book design falls down is where the designer clearly has not thought about who's ultimately going to use the book. Making it as easy uh, mm -hmm. and as pleasurable as possible for them yeah. to uh, devour the book and, and absolutely yeah. lug it around or yeah. store it or these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. The best book design is invisible book design, literally yeah. to the average consumer. I mean, you and I are bibliophiles, and we are we are keenly in interested in how books are made and what they mm -hmm. look like and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But to the average consumer, they're interested in reading a good story or looking at great photography or whatever it is. They shouldn't have to work hard to get to that stuff, right? And that so your your job is to make it, you know, that that direct connection is sure. as smooth and seamless. Absolutely, and, yeah. Even Absolutely. though even though a lot of thought goes into it. Absolutely, yeah. number one. Yeah, I mean, it, it, my opinion is the most successful book design is the book design that is invisible, okay. that you can't, you don't notice. 
This book that we're talking about by Graham Gibson, and I'm speaking mm -hmm. with C.S. Richardson, an award-winning Canadian book designer, mm -hmm. it's called The Bedside Book of Birds, and uh, it's, it's a sort of a commonplace book that mm -hmm. Gibson has... Uh, He's compiled all sorts of wonderful little stories about birds, along with all sorts of images. And mm -hmm. it's funny, when I first picked it up, I was looking for the name of the illustrator, and of course, <laughs> <laughs> there isn't one. It, what did he do then? He he basically pulled together all these, these anecdotes, yeah. along with uh, these Art. images? Yeah, the, absolutely. Like he, Graham is, a, is an avid, avid birder, and has been for 15, 20 years. Uh, and over the course of the past probably 12 years or so, he had quietly amassed great writing, great anecdotes about birds from the classics like Ovid to, you know, Gay Talese to modern day writers, fiction, non-fiction, it didn't matter. He, he just wanted some great writing about birds. At the same time, he was amassing art that had birds in it. Okay, now, now original art or any kind of little clipping any, yeah, or anything. Any kind of any kind of art from little from like folk art sculptures from Mexico to illuminated manuscripts from the Middle Ages to you know modern impressionists and everywhere in between. Because he's just a, such a, a fan of birds and he's such a birder, so he was amassing all of this stuff. Yeah, sort of a collector too, though, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was he was an arch archivist, if if nothing else. He decided, well, this should be in book form. This sort of, you know, it, it, it's, it's an anthology, it's a miscellany, it's whatever. So he came to the publishing house and said, I have all of this stuff. What can we do with it? What a thrilling project. I mean, you, you missed, when you first saw all this stuff, what was your reaction? I, I, I was stunned, completely stunned, and thrilled beyond belief. Because normally what happens, in the, it, certainly in the design portion of the publishing process, his design comes fairly late in the process. The book's been edited. The editor and the author work together. They pull it all together, and they clean it, and they polish it, and they do all those kinds of things. And everything is then just sort of laid on the designer's table and said, okay, now build a book. Mm. But in the case of this book, in the case of Graham's book, I was called in at the beginning when Graham first showed up, literally. With all these sort of With all this stuff. And yeah. we, we had a series of discussions before the book had been edited, before the, the, the editor had got involved with Graham to pare it down. Uh, and we talked about this book as an entity, not just as, uh, as you know, Graham's miscellany that happens to be in book form, mm. but how best to integrate design with all of this material. So I was absolutely thrilled. I mean, I worked as much as an editor as I did a designer on this. So, for example, then... Lots of color illustrations of, of all sorts of different types of birds from mm -hmm. from all sorts of different cultures. The two of you, you sit down and say, "Okay, this one goes with this one goes with this one." Yep, literally, yeah. that's yeah. what we did. Once, okay. once Graham and his editor had had pared it down to a man. I mean, literally, he came in with I would bet five hundred images alone, leaving aside the words that he had amassed. Okay. In the final book, there are about two hundred images. So once the editor and Graham had sort of pared things down to a manageable size, Graham and I literally sat over the course of a year and pared things together or built sections of the book together where a piece of art n not necessarily went with the, an individual piece of writing, but we thought from a more thematic point of view that they would work together. And until we had the whole book, 
with a flow, with you know, good pacing for all the art, a, a good variety of art. You know, I mean, we would go from black and white sort of Maori drawing, cave drawings, to illuminated manuscripts, to photography, to keep the reader interested. I'm looking at this blue breast here mm -hmm. by John Ruskin. You've selected this sweet little painting mm -hmm. uh, of, of a blue breast that's in a, a soft, circular, smallish yeah. sized depiction on the page, whereas on the previous page there's a full-page version of linguistaph finial, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever that might be, from Ghana. Like <laughs> An African, sort of African sculpture. Why would you go with the little blue breast? Why would you go well, with that, and why would you take the full page on the one, other? One of the things we wanted to do was to have a sense of surprise. Yeah, there was an underlying sort of notion that Graham and I had come up with that said, the more commonplace the bird, if we've seen that bird or if we've seen a painting of that bird in other places, like Audubon, there's a couple of great examples that we, we had some we have some Audubon pieces in there. But everyone has seen Audubon. We wanted to treat that in a slightly different way to give the reader something of a little more interest. So we would go from the full page of the African sculpture to the little what we call a vignette of the little bird, just for variety as much yeah, as anything else. To keep else. the, the reader to uh, keep the reader interested, interested. absolutely, mm -hmm. and and to hopefully give them a sense of surprise. Yeah, we've seen those that painting of cranes, but I've never seen it that close, or I've never seen that detail. So there was a lot of consideration of taking what was, quote-unquote, standard art. There's, there's a lot of art that no one has seen in the book, but there are pieces in the book that we've, that we've all seen in one form or another. But treat them in a slightly different way. Graham said, if you have any ideas, throw them out. So uh, there's an excerpt from uh, the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle in the book. And I thought, well, why not we have a, a little a little photograph of a wind up, literally a wind up bird? You know, find an old Japanese toy bird. So I found one, put it in, and Graham was going, well, that's a little too flip, it's a little too cliched, and he wasn't right, he wasn't wrong, sorry. But there was a lot of that. There was mm -hmm. a lot of sort of backing and forth. Which sounds to me unusual. Oh, it is unusual. Typically, is. I know that, uh, for example, uh, with children's books and the illustrate the illustrator and the author often don't know each other and yep. you know they're they're paired together mm -hmm. but uh, and they do their own thing and yep. it comes together at the end the amount of collaboration that went into into graham's book is a very rare thing yeah certainly between designer and it's a rare bird then yeah it's funny uh, i'm talking with c.s uh, richardson uh, the book designer for the bedside uh, book of birds by graham gibson and graham gibson I just flip open to a, a poem called Vultures by Margaret Atwood, mm -hmm. and of course Margaret Atwood is Graham Gibson's wife. And again, that that example of the, the sweet little uh, sort of color, a vignette of a couple of vultures, and then prior to that, a, the enormous horned, <laughs> the horned screamer <laughs> from France. Uh, illustrating well, what you've said, you know, it's quite a lovely variety and juxtaposition. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, there were times when when we wanted to tip to the obvious. If the poem is about vultures, we want to have a little illustration of a vulture. But sometimes, I mean, Graham found some of these wonderful pieces of art that just came out of nowhere, like the screamer. There's an illustration from a French, an old French illustrated newspaper from the 1920s obviously illustrating some fictional story, at least I hope it's a fictional story, of a girl in British Columbia being carried away by a raven, which Graham had found at a bouquiniste in Paris, and brought it back and just said, we've got to use this somewhere. One of the uh, the other things that's 
quite striking about the book, and, mm-hmm. it, and it reminds me much of a art gallery exhibit. Mm-hmm. And what you've done is you've matched ink mm-hmm. with these various illustrations and yep. covered the full page in that <laughs> ink and then used reverse type. Graham had spent a lot of time organizing this, this mass collection into, I'll use your analogy, thematic rooms within a gallery. Various themes to do with birds, birds as birds of prey, birds as, as objects to be hunted, all kinds of different things. He had worked very hard to get it into those sections, and we wanted a clear definition for the reader that you have left one room, you are about to go to another room. So the bulk of the pages are, are creamy stock, but those uh, section openers are, are completely contrasting. And we wanted a complementary color to whatever the piece of art was facing it. So yeah, that's as much to signal to the reader that, okay, you've left one area, now we're into another area. What is the typeface that you used, and why did you use it? Dante. I used Dante throughout for a number of reasons, the most important of which was that it is a remarkably easy face to read. Uh, It was designed, I can't remember how long ago. Most good book designers are using typefaces that were designed three, four, five hundred years ago. They've been obviously digitized and updated for, for today's technology. But those typefaces are easily read. They come in a complete family. So, I mean, I can use Dante regular for the basic text. I can use Dante italics for the captions. I can use Dante small caps for display type. It was easily read. It looked good at a slightly larger size. Thinking about the the end reader, and they may, you know, yes, there are young readers who are bird fans. The typical birder or the what we envisioned in our heads as the ideal reader for this book tends to be older. You know, eyesight isn't as good as it used to be. And, you know, God forbid we would want to set it in a face that was so small and illegible that nobody would want to read it. You know, to my amateur's eye, I mean, it looks a lot like the very standard uh, New Times Roman. You know what? A lot of the a lot of the modern faces, New Times Roman, Garamond, are based on classic old typefaces. Literally, four hundred year old typefaces. One of the things I'm quite proud of with this book, but with most of the book design that I do, is that I could show my book design to like John Baskerville who was working as a book designer and typographer in the 1700s, and he would know what I was doing. He would get the reason I have, you know, the page margins and where the folios are and all of that kind of stuff, because that's the classic book design has stood the test of time. Yeah, it's great to be innovative, and it's great to be different, and we've all seen those kinds of modern books. But when you're dealing with a lot of text, and when you're dealing with just getting a story into a reader's hands doing something that was done 500 years ago is still the best way of doing it. Northrop Fry had something good to say about the technology of the book. You yep. know, it's just one of the, the greatest technological innovations yep. uh, that we've seen and, and as you say, it, it was it was great back then and it really hasn't changed a great <laughs> hasn't deal. hasn't changed at all. It yeah. really, literally hasn't changed. I mean, if you look at really good book design, it is remarkably similar to a book that would have been produced 500 years ago. We touched on it earlier. Why did you choose, this is called the Bedside Book of Birds. Yep. Why did you choose the size that you chose? It was a very tough decision to make. We had this wealth of illustrated material. And our first inclination was to 
make it a large, in effect, an art book with lots of text, uh, which is not a really remote possibility, and certain people like that kind of thing. But in discussing it with Graham and discussing it with the publishing house, we all came to the notion what, that this is literally a bedside book. This is, this is something that someone will keep by their bedside, and they could sit it in their lap, and they will dip in and dip out. Once we had made that decision and were comfortable with that decision, it then came down to, well, okay, how big can we make it to give all that illustrated material its due, but by the same token make it handy and accessible and easy to use in bed and all that kind of stuff. And what we're looking at about what, how big is this? Is, this is bigger than your trade Yeah, it's about uh, six. Paperback. It's about six, and, as I remember. I think it's six and an eighth by nine and a half, maybe. So it's slightly oversized. The standard trim size for those who buy novels and most books, most books are around six inches by nine inches, sometimes slightly smaller. What we call trade paperbacks are usually five and a half by eight and a half. Birds is slightly larger than your average trim size, but still reasonably handy to hold. And it's, I mean, it's a healthy number. It's about 370 it pages. Been, it so. could have been 800 pages. <laughs> that was the toughest thing. You know, for economic sake, I mean, we could have produced a book that was $70, $80 and been quite happy with that, and we would have sold whatever we would have sold. This one goes for 35 and This one's 35 yeah, and we, But we wanted to keep the book under $50. Literally, we were looking at price points and going, yeah. how do we make a book that is luscious and gorgeous and keep it under $50? And what criteria did you use to get these pieces into the book and or exclude others? The pieces of writing were more Graham than me. Graham asked my opinion, and I said to him, you know what, the more obscure, the better. Or if you have writing by someone who is known for writing about something else, but have written about birds, that's what I would be interested in reading as a non-bird fan. Well, I mean, one of the things I loved about working on this project was the fact that I'm not a fan of bird. Not now a, you are, I bet. I'm a lot... Or at least your eyes are much wider. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> so I had said to Graham, you know what, I would be very interested in picking up this book if I knew I was getting stuff that, that surprised me. Like, I didn't mm-hmm. know that Margaret Atwood wrote about birds. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that Gay Talese had a little piece in... I, I can't remember what book it came out of that he had a little piece about birds in it. So that was the criteria, I think, as far as I was concerned. Certainly in terms of the artwork, the basic rule of thumb was if we haven't seen it before, it goes in. If it's reasonably good quality, it goes in, certainly. And I would think, too, if it's sort of different or striking. Hmm? Absolutely. Purely on its own aesthetic. Absolutely. I mean, there there are Audubon pieces in there, which we've seen before, but we treated them in a different way. One of the things that I'm very proud about in the selection of artwork is there's a lot of Aboriginal art in there. First Nations, not only from Canada, but but from you know from New Zealand, from Tasmania, from Africa, which you don't see a lot of. There's a little bit of photography in there. So yeah, that was the criteria for the for the art, as we yeah. call it, was something we'd never seen before, or if we had seen it, we were going to treat it in an entirely different way. What about the paper? What is it? And again, why why did you choose it? I don't know the specifics of the paper. It was chosen specifically for. Two reasons. One, we wanted a cream stock because we knew we were dealing primarily with a lot of old art, which tends to print better on a warmer, what we call a warmer paper. So, and like lots of sort of beiges and, and yeah, sort of sort of you know, and creams and and sepias and mm-hmm. those kinds of things, and they tend to reproduce much better on a cream stock as opposed to a bright white. That was number one. Number two, Graham is a avid 
environmentalist. And he was very concerned to the point of saying this book will be printed on 100% forest-friendly paper or it will not be printed at all. So we went to great lengths to make sure that we could get the stock. Oh, yeah, and so I'm just reading off the title page here. Yeah. It says, printed on paper that does not contain any materials from trees of old-growth right. forests. Graham was adamant about that, yeah. uh, and rightly so. Um, what is that? I mean, old, you'd think that old-growth forests are the ones that they chop down, no? Well, they, they do, but they're not supposed to. That's the, the thinking. So that were, those were the major considerations. And we wanted a paper of a, a reasonable heft that would hold a lot of ink. I mean, this, this book is full color throughout. So there's a lot of ink involved. So we wanted a paper that could withstand all that and felt sort of warm and cozy as opposed to, you know, a basic sort of art book kind of look. Why do you, uh, C.S. Richardson, designer of the Bedside Book of Birds, mm -hmm. why do you think you won the Alcoon Society, which is a sort of a society of book lovers, why do you think you won that award? Oh, brother. Well, I guess you've, you've <laughs> not just the one. You've, how many have you won? I have won all in nine. I have won. <laughs> oh, goodness. I've, over the course of 20 years of designing books, I've won nine. Wow. In this case, I think it was an attention to the way I designed the type, an attention to the mix between... Well, you didn't design the type. You mean the chose no, the I, type? No, I, I, the design of the page, I should say, okay. is, is how that type sits on the page, what size it is, the letting involved, the margins involved. The way you sort of, in some cases, you sort of work around the, uh, yep. the illustration. <coughs> yeah. So I think it was that plus, I think, a real careful consideration as to what pieces of art were going with what pieces of writing and a real effort on our part to make the book flow right through rather than just sort of being page after page of images of birds. Okay. So I think that's why. I, I, I don't know. They never told me why. Are you an illustrator as well as a designer? No. Or no. Just no. So Are you kidding me? No. No. Okay. <laughs> no, I take other people's illustrations and put them on a page. I see. Okay. So it's as much as anything, it's an eye for placing design and typeface yep. in an appealing manner. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and then choosing the right kind of paper and yep. uh, ink, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff involved. It's not yeah. just sort of playing around and being fancy. One uh, final uh, question. You are unique in, or not unique, but rare, <laughs> again, in that you are also, uh, this is fairly recent in your career, mm -hmm. a, a novelist. I am, yes. Perhaps you could just give our listeners a, an idea of the difference between the two. And oh, the, brother. Are you having someone else design your novels, or are you doing it yourself? No, I had, in, in the course of the 25 years I've been in the publishing business, 20 of them designing books, I think that a certain amount of osmosis took place. Where I mean, I work every day with authors, and great authors, and great writing. Uh, well, such as? Well, Graham Gibson, Anne-Marie MacDonald, Wayson Choi, Margaret Atwood, Ian McEwen, P.D. James, Poole, Michael Crummy. The list is long. It's, I mean, I've been blessed to work with so many fantastic writers. And there came a point, I think about eight years ago, where I thought, well, you know what? I want to try this. I think, I mean, I've worked with words all my life. I mean, I've done a little bit of copywriting, and I was, in, you know, spent a, a, a bit of time in the advertising business. So I'm not a stranger to the word. Seeing, uh, working with these writers and just seeing how that craft inspired me to take a, take a crack at it. You must have had a story inside yourself that was begging to get out. You know, out. I probably did. I mean, and so I started about eight years, 
just writing on the side, writing for myself, just to see if I could do it. And then about four years ago, I came up with an idea for a novel, and it took me about four years to write that novel. And the title of that novel? Is The End of the Alphabet. It's appropriate for a book design. <laughs> I thought so. It was published about two months ago, back in February of seven, By? By Doubleday Canada. But when it, when it became apparent that it was going to be a real book and that, it, and that it was going to be published, somebody came along and said, well, will you design your own book? And I almost instantaneously said no, because in all those years I have been working with authors, they are, rightly so, so close to their books. It is such a personal process that I think, I mean, it's like the old adage, a lawyer you know, who has himself for a client is a fool. It's, I think it would be the same. I think, a, I think an author who tries to design their own book will do themselves a disservice. So I felt very comfortable in stepping away from the design because this was a writing project for me, this novel. I was in very good hands. The woman who designed my novel, Kelly Hill, is an award winner in her own right. She's designed Miriam Taves and Amy Mackay. She's fantastic. But I wanted to step away from it. I wanted a fresh pair of eyes on it. Yes, in the course of writing the novel, I, you know, when I was stuck, I would default to a comfort zone and go, well, I could design a quick cover. So I would literally push myself. I'd just design covers on my own for my own novel. No one has ever seen those, and no one will ever see them. <laughs> Most of them are really self-indulgent. Were you happy with the result? Oh, thrilled. And what was the experience like when you were kind of going back and forth? It was really, really good. I didn't have to do much going backing and forthing. I mean, I was blessed with a Generally, the process in designing books for most authors is that I will sit... as a, The designer will sit with the book's editor, and the editor will brief the designer on what the book's about and what's involved and what they would like to see as a publishing house. And obviously part of it is to attract the attention of the, the book-buying public. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are different yeah. things. Right? Lots want, of cons- You want to reflect what's in it, but you also want to attract uh, yeah. the consumer. You want to respect the content, you want to reflect the content, but you do not want to lead the consumer by the hand, and you want to attract their attention. My job as a book jacket designer, when I'm designing a book jacket, my sole job is to get somebody to stop in the bookstore. I don't want to tell them the whole story. I don't want to give them, you know, if it's War and Peace, I don't want to give them everything on the front panel. I just want them to stop. So the process for me being on the writing side was remarkably good because I knew I was in good hands. I trusted the professionals who were handling this, i.e. my editor, my designer, and let them do their thing. You know, I was asked beforehand, what are you thinking about for this book? And, you know, have you thought about certain images, icons, things like that? As any author would be, certainly the authors that I work with. I mean, that's the first conversation I have with them is, you know, in the course of the years you've been writing this book, surely you've had an idea of what you'd like to see. And that's usually a starting point. But, yeah, no, the process was wonderful. And I really relished the opportunity to not be the designer. Just in closing, then, what would you leave with a book lover as a designer, suggest that they might look for uh, in terms of determining whether or not a book is well-designed or not? Oh, boy. There's a funny adage that those of us in the book design community always tip to. It's a very small group of us in Canada, certainly. It's what we call thumbage. And thumbage is as simple as the following. If when you pick up a book, a novel, or any kind of book, primarily a novel, say, lots of text. If you pick up the book and you open it anywhere, if there are margins on the pages that are blank enough that you can put your thumbs on and not obscure the text block, then that is a well-designed book. 
<laughs> I'm doing that right now with yours. I could probably get at least a thumb and a half. And that's and that I mean it, the notion of margins on a page and where that text block sits within the page is again something that has come out of 500 years of book design. Is that as much as anything because people can write marginalia in there? Or oh, what? absolutely. I mean, I, I think it, it it has to do with a number of different factors. As the golden section is involved in the. Fibonacci numbers and all kinds of things coming out of book design as it was happening 500 years ago. But in you know modern parlance, we call it thumbage. So that's a well-designed book. I mean, if you can read the type, <laughs> you know, frankly, yeah. if it's not too close together, if you don't have to tilt your head to read it, that's all good book design. One as you say, sorry to interrupt, but as you say, if it's invisible, you know, if it's, if it's if invisible, there's, there's nothing coming between yeah. you and the enjoyment of the text. Yeah, I mean, even if it's good design, if it, I mean, it, it still has to be invisible. I mean, if you even if you pick up a book and you look and say, "Wow, that's a cool typeface," well, that's bad. You shouldn't have to. You shouldn't be saying that. You shouldn't be just saying it's the content that's king. Yeah, it's, it's the content is absolutely. When it comes to book design, content is everything. Mm -hmm. Is absolutely everything, and that's the big difference between book design and say magazine design or web design or any of the other kind of graphic designs out there, mm -hmm. is that you are getting out of the way. You're just making it easier for a reader to get to the subject matter. Finally, uh, a couple of your favorite book designers. Oh boy, it's a long list. In Canada, Canada and around the world. Um, in Canada, present and past. In Canada, certainly Peter Cocking is probably my go-to guy. Uh, he's he designs out of Vancouver. He works for Douglas and McIntyre Books, and he is consistently fine and creative and smart. Um, and where would we see his stuff? You would see his stuff. He's 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 won more awards than I have. Like by the boxcar load. He, he designs a lot of art books. He, he designed a book by Arthur Erickson on an architecture just recently. He's done some stuff with Emily Carr's work. In the States, Gabrielle Wilson is a personal favorite of mine, and, and Carol Devine Carson, both of whom, well, Carol works at Knopf US, and, and Gabrielle used to work at Knopf. Gabrielle, she would be best known for Balzac and the Little Chinese Seamstress, which is possibly one of the most gorgeous books of the last... 10 years. Carol Devine Carson, her triumph for me, and I think it's a genius piece of design, is the year of magical thinking, which was all type. No images whatsoever. Uh, Joan Didion's book. It is huge bestseller. It's a huge bestseller. There is no image on the cover. It is all type, but it is one of the most subtle and one, mo one of the most effective book jackets I've ever seen. So that's Carol and Gabrielle in the States. In the UK, David Pearson is probably my favorite. He used to be the art director at Penguin UK, and he was very much involved in the design of all the Penguin Great Minds series that has been out for the last year. Love them. Yeah, just gorgeous. And he also worked with the 70 Penguins when it was Penguin's 70th anniversary, and they redesigned or repackaged all these slim little volumes. He was heavily involved in that. So David Pearson is one of my favorites, and I love to see his work. That's that's a very short list sure. of a very long list of designers. Great. Well, C.S. Richardson, award-winning Canadian book designer, and hopefully in the future, award-winning novelist. Your lips to God's ears, as they say. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. pleasure entirely. It was a huge pleasure. A huge thrill. Thank you. That was great. Good stuff. Oh, that was wonderful. Isn't it fun, eh? Love talking about books.